Welcome, friends, to the Susquadcast, the podcast all about Camp Susqua. Today on the Susquadcast, we are bringing you the first of four chapel messages from our recent Blast Winter Camp for College Age students. Our chaplain was Barnabas Piper, and he spoke on the theology of friendship. So if you'd like to listen to a conversation laying the foundation for his chapel messages, you can check out our last episode where Peter and I sat down with Barnabas to discuss what he learned as he prepared. Now, the chapel message you're about to hear takes some time to consider the question, what is friendship and looks at some of the definitions of friendship as well as how we can start to think about it more biblically. Thanks again for joining us. Let's listen in. It's really good to be with y'all and uh, yeah I'm excited to dig into this um, this topic of friendship uh, when when Peter threw it out a few months ago as a suggestion um, I, I hadn't done a lot of deep study on it but I thought Immediately, I was like, "Yes, that is that's a that's a pressing issue, and it's a pressing issue at, at any area of life." I have, as you mentioned, I have two daughters who are in middle school and high school. Friendship is an issue at, at those ages. I'm almost forty. Friendship is an issue at my age. College years, friendship is an issue. It's one of those things that we value highly, and we don't really know what to do with, and it's a struggle. So, uh, thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say about it. So that's what we get to look at. Um, this weekend slash week. I don't really know what we're calling this. This, this, uh, this blast. So what, why, why am I the one to speak on this? It's certainly not because I'm an expert at friendship. Um, I don't know what that means, to be an expert at friendship, and I feel like if somebody called themselves that, you should immediately ignore them. Um, if you have a lot of Facebook Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, also, this crowd doesn't know what Facebook is. That's for old people. Um, that's when you have the pastor's retreat. So, um, so it's I. This this speaks to me because of my shortcomings in friendship. Actually, there are so many things about being a friend that I, I look at myself and I think I I wish I was better at that. I I'm not proud of myself. I failed in this way. Um, I you know you just sort of generally feel like I'm sort of a, a D D plus friend most of the time. So. In, in preparing to, to talk to you guys about it, I've, I've been encouraged and fed by what God's Word has to say. And I, hopefully my shortcomings actually allow me to speak to it better because it, it kind of puts us all in the same place rather than me thinking that I have something to offer you uh, as the one who knows stuff. So there's a few really good reasons to, to, to dig into what the Bible has to say about friendship. The first, and we would all agree with this, friendship's really important, right? It's really important. And as a Christian, it's especially important to, to live a whole and full Christian life. Uh, second, friendship is misunderstood. Most of us have wrong expectations or value the wrong things about friendship. We sort of we might not think about it very deeply, but when we do, we tend to put the weight on the wrong aspects of friendship. So the Bible helps kind of point us in the right direction in terms of what, what matters most. Third, friendship is hard. And most of us wish we were better at it. Uh, if you have not found friendship to be hard in your life, I would like to have a conversation with you afterwards because you either you you have solved the riddle that none of us can solve, or it's coming. You know, somebody is going to do something that you you go that hurts. I thought that person was my friend, 
or something as simple as we were really close friends and then they moved four states away. Well, that sucks. Now, now it's hard to be friends. So friendship is just hard. And then the last really good reason to study and dig into friendship is that friendship is God's idea and design, and he tells us exactly what good friendship looks like. So it's important and invaluable, it's misunderstood, it's difficult, and it's God's idea. So this evening, I want to talk more with you than at you. I figure this evening is going to be when you have the most energy. I'll do most of the talking the next three days, and you can pretend to pay attention. Tonight, I need your engagement, especially for the first part of this. So, Because I'm just going to pose a bunch of questions, and we're going to talk through and under, like, what, how do we understand friendship? Um, why is it challenging? And what makes it valuable? And then at the end, I'm going to come around, and we're going to look at really trying to answer the question, why is friendship so difficult uh, from the book of Genesis? That's what we're gonna, so we're going to end up tonight. But to start, I just want to throw out some of these big questions, and then this is going to be sort of a free-for-all. So I'm going to throw out a question. You guys just raise your hand. I'll call on you and, and give me answers back. So the first is this. What is a friend or what is friendship? Help me define this. So what is a friend? This works better if you talk. <laughs> Someone will tell you when your zipper's down. Um, you know, there's a, I, I, in the third message, I'm going to look at the proverb that says, faithful are, the, or, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That would be one of those. Um, but yeah, so there, there you go. Somebody who tells you the truth about the awkward things. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Someone you enjoy spending time with. Someone you enjoy spending time with. That's good, yes. There's a hand down here. Yeah. Oh, somebody who's got your back. You can trust them. Trust is huge. Yes. They support you. Other ideas. Yeah. Encouragement. Encouragement. Somebody who encourages you. Yeah. A confidant. A confidant. That's a big word. Flesh that one out. What does that mean? Uh, someone you can share things with and be vulnerable with, and expect them not to, you know, attack you for you know, or um, share it with the world. Yes. Yeah. Somebody you can be vulnerable with, and they will. They'll protect you in that. They'll, they'll take care of you. Yeah. Somebody who makes you better, that's a good one. Yeah, makes you a better person, so they, they sharpen you. There's another proverb about that we're going to get to. Did I see a hand back there? That one too? Okay, brilliant minds think alike. Yeah, here we go. Challenging one another, that's good. Accepts you in your shortcomings. You guys have really high standards for friends. This is good. Yeah. Tests you, strengthens you in your walk with Christ. That's good. Mm -hmm. doesn't just leave you in your weakest moment. It helps help someone helps you bring you back up to where you need, where you should be. Okay. Yeah, they walk with you through the hard things towards restoration. Yeah, back there. Yeah. So it's not a. This is not a um, a transactional relationship. This is this is doing something for the good of one another. Yeah. A couple more. Uh, someone. Okay. Yeah, that's often where friendship starts. The hand in the middle here. Somebody you enjoy hanging out with. You just yeah, that's good. That's really important, actually. Uh, all all the spiritual stuff really matters. But if you don't like spending time with someone, it's real hard to be friends with them. Yep, honest and the hard stuff. They like to see you win. Yeah, they they want your best. That's good. Yeah. Did you have your hand up? No. Okay. All right, so this is, this is really, sorry about that. 
<laughs> you moved. It's like an auction. If I see you move, bid to the lady in the front row. Um, you guys are better at defining friendship than the dictionaries. I looked up definitions because I just wanted to see how bad the general wisdom on friendship was. Uh, as Peter said, we've sort of lost, kind of lost the bullseye on this. Um, so here are a few definitions that I'm going to, they're, they're, they're just sadly pathetic. Um, a person whom one knows and with whom one has a bond of mutual affection, that's not so bad, uh, typically exclusive of sexual or family relations. So you can't be friends with your family. That's the rule, apparently. No, that, uh, I mean, I'm not friends with my family, but that's, no. Um, that's just a boring technical definition. They're trying to, like, draw the delineations. They're like, if you were going to describe how this person is related to you, you'd probably say, this is my sister or this is my brother before you said French. Like, okay, we're going to draw the lines there. But it's, it's just kind of lame. Not that one's boring. Um, someone you know well and like, but who is not related to you. That's it? That, I mean... Know well, the phrase know well is doing a lot of heavy lifting there because everything, everything you guys said would have to be wrapped up in know well and then there's uh, not related to you. All right, this one. One attached to another by affection or esteem. That could be worse. Attached kind of speaks to a bond. There's affection, that's good. Esteem, you respect the person. Um, but that also could describe a really unhealthy relationship. Let me read that one again. Attached to another by affection or esteem. Sounds a lot like idolatry. Or a codependent relationship. That's not friendship. You're not looking out for the, the other's good. There's just sort of a, a weird clinginess. This is how the dictionary tries to define friendship. No wonder we... I don't, I don't know if they looked at culture and got these definitions, or culture looked at them and got these definitions, but one way or the other... We have a lame understanding of friendship. This is my favorite one. One that is not hostile. <laughs> Anybody who doesn't hate you is your friend. It basically summarizes friendships as if they're not against us, they're for us. That's, that's only true in war. Maybe business, but pretty much just war. So this is, this is what we're working with here. Now, there is a definition of friendship I found that is, it gets close. It says friendship is a state of enduring affection, esteem, intimacy. In an, it, thankfully, they, they, they threw that in there. That's rare. And trust between two people. Enduring affection, esteem, intimacy, and trust between two people. That's a strong start. Um, it says between two people, showing that it's mutual. There's a lot there. But again, it, it, it doesn't really touch on the depths of it. There's Words like confidant and trust and these other pieces that you guys threw out there, the, the, um, looking for the, the good of the other person, a non-transactional relationship, those things are not wrapped up in this definition. So you guys did a way better job. All right, here's another question for you. Um, we're going to break it into two halves. How do you make friends when you're a child? How did you make friends when you were a kid? Yeah. The person who... The person next to you who is also making mud pies is your new best friend. There you go. The person who's nearby who has a common interest, even if it's a weird one. Yeah. Uh, my parents arranged a play date. Oh. Yeah, it's an, it's, an <laughs> it's an arranged friendship. Did they call it play dates when you were a kid? When did that start? Because when I was growing up, we just played with kids. There was no play dates. Okay. Well, okay. That's sad, but okay. Yeah, there you go. You see a random person, you're like, hey, you want to be friends? 
There you go. It's the uh, it's sort of the the blind the 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 blind ask out. It's like asking you know it's like asking somebody out at a bar, except when you're six, it's like asking somebody out at the playground. Uh, did I say hand? To, there you go. Back here. Find yourself in a common location a lot of the times, and it's just awkward Yeah, you just spend a lot of time sitting in the same desks or at the same swing set or in the same neighboring backyards or whatever. And ta-da, friends. Other other ideas. How'd you make friends as kids? That pretty much covers it. I got left at the uh, at the playground once, and someone drove me home. <laughs> you became friends with them. They were not friends with your parents. That is correct. Yeah, that yeah. that didn't go well. <laughs> okay, how do you make friends? So that's as a child. Let's put it in adolescence. Anywhere between, say, I think all of this kind of tops out right around middle school. So let's say 13, 14 up until, up through high school. How do you make friends in those years? Yeah. Yep. Being on the same sports team, that's good, yeah. You get adopted by an extrovert, that's good. Everybody needs it, everybody needs an extrovert looking out for them, yeah. Youth group, there you go. Similar dislikes, yes. I actually have all of these written down, yeah. Coworkers? You adopt your siblings' friends, and you're way cooler than your siblings, so that's a great idea. Yes. <laughs> you adopt your siblings' friends' siblings, so... Okay. I, I'm tracking with you. I followed. That's good. Meshing with your teacher. Oh, okay. Messing with. I thought you said meshing with, and got you. Yeah, absolutely. You mutual prank playing. This is good. Don't do that here. I'm told that's not acceptable at this camp. Yeah. Can go to Camp Susqua. Hey, prize for that guy. Here you go. Uh, coolest, toys. coolest toys. That's true when you're a kid. That doesn't really stop for men ever. You know, everybody wants to befriend the guy who has the coolest toys. All right. Now uh, that that caps out at high school. Now you're college aged, and I would also like you to project into the uh, the abyss of adulthood beyond where you're at. How do you make a How do you make friends? As adults, yeah. Coworkers. Coworkers. Similar. <laughs> if if we cut that off at struggles, it's true. Similar struggles. You you find commonality, and we are both trying to make it through whatever this thing is together. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, study groups. Study groups. Okay. Church. Church. Apps. <laughs> we'll come back to that one. <laughs> Let me pause on church real quick. If you go to church with, say, 300, 500 people, uh, how do you make 100 people? How, that puts you in the same building as somebody. How do you make friends through church? Uh, if somebody sit next to you, you get talking towards the end of church. There you go. Or uh, if you're in a smaller group with one-on-one on one time or something, you can get to know. Yeah. Usually church breaks down into smaller relational contexts, Sunday school classes, small groups, or whatever it is. Yeah. There you go. The little old ladies. God bless, God bless little old ladies. Every church needs more of them, and that's not a joke. They are the best. Yes? Uh, well, a little bit. The scripture that does say that sometimes there will be periods when you just don't make friends. And you have to learn how to kind of deal with that. Yeah, that's true. I'd
Yeah, that that is that is absolutely true. Some, I mean, when I say how do you make friends, this is not saying you are guaranteed to. Some there are difficult stretches where it feels lonely and isolated, and we're going to talk about some of that too. A couple more. So we'll we'll do these in this corner, and then so there's I think there's three of you. So we'll start on the outside. So glad somebody said similar senses of humor. That's uh, that's vital. Yes. This is kind of a stretch, but living on the edge, kind of, if you were an actor with Jim Carrey and Yes Dad. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> which which probably means I'm just old, but. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's uh, terrifying. That's what that is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, assimilated into an existing friend group. There's a lot more ideas here. These are all really, really good. Um, so I kind of, I kind of saw this. Think about, so think about where we talked about kids, adolescence, adulthood. Um, I will also tell you that a lot of the experiences you have, if you're, if you're in college, out of college, you are at sort of a sweet spot for friend making, because there's just there's there's more opportunities than where you're at in life right now. So take full advantage of them. And uh, and then hold on to those friends. Uh, they don't they won't be the only friends you make for the rest of your life, but they might be the best friends this this period of life. But there's there's sort of a sequence in how friendship goes. It starts with proximity. You know, we talked about an arranged play date or next door neighbors, or we were in the same first grade class. So you become friends as a kid with those who are nearby. Then there's common interests. There's the the making mud pies or playing sports or video games or whatever. Common experiences and affinity groups. That's teams or clubs or choirs or whatever. So you just you end up we're investing in the same thing. Uh, common enemies. This would involve messing with your teacher, for example, um, or we dis similar dislikes. I think somebody over here said so. You have sort of a we we are bonded together by what we're against, which is a really great way to bond initially. Not a great way to maintain strong friendships over time, um, as is depicted by our current political situation in this country. Um, that's everybody. That's not a party. That's, that's all parties. Common causes or challenges. So now we're working in more of a positive direction. So you are, you're, you're throwing yourself into something, right, alongside other people. So this, this could be a team. Think about people in the military. There is a, a deep cause-oriented investment in whatever a mission is, or working for the good of their squad, their battalion, their whatever it is. Um, missions trips, service projects, you, you develop friendships because we are all pulling in the same direction. We're working for the good of a single idea alongside one another. You get a little deeper, you get into shared suffering. This was touched on, the sort of shared misery. That's, that's actually really, really strong grounds for friendship. Because now you're sharing one another's burdens. There's a, there's a working for each other's goods, uh, being there for somebody else. And then sort of the pinnacle of, of friend-making is shared openness. So at the beginning when I said, what is a friend, and words like trust and confidant and things like that were thrown out, that's what I'm talking about. Where you reach the place of risking vulnerability and honesty and basically putting it in somebody else's hands and saying, I'm trusting you with this. This part of me that feels, it feels risky to put out there. Something in my soul, something in my emotions, something that feels vulnerable. 
What's striking is how often, though, we stop at the point of common causes or challenges, even as adults. So friendship starts with proximity and common interests and common experiences and common enemies and common causes, and it never gets to shared suffering or shared openness and vulnerability. And I think about the, I think about the number of grown men who I know, my age, older, a little bit younger, who have golf buddies, who have hunting buddies, who fix cars with people, and that's their friends. But their marriages are falling apart, and they're depressed, and they're broke, and they're miserable, and they don't love Jesus. And nobody knows that until they break, because they don't get to the place of shared suffering. Hey, man, can I tell you about something I'm going through? Or shared openness, which, can I tell you about something I'm going through? Here's how terrified I am, for example. So we, we cap it at, at the commonalities and don't get to the vulnerabilities. All right, this is a little bit similar to the first one I asked you. What are the most important aspects of friendship? Another way to think about this, what are the most valuable traits of a good friend? Yes. Consistency. Uh, rephrase that, because you can be consistently awful. <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot. Well, I feel like I've consistently good qualities. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, or reliable, let's say. There you go. Yes. Loyalty is good, yeah. Patience. Yes. Determined. Determined? Flesh that one out a little bit. Why is that a great quality for a friend? When you, you're going to be taking challenges with somebody and working with as opposed to the Lord going through suffering, you want somebody who's going to help you thrive. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Thank you. It's really good. Who, who else? Yeah. Uh, willing to listen. Yeah, good listener. That's good. Which goes along with humility. Because to listen means to put somebody else first because you're letting them kind of take the spotlight and you are, you're just receiving. Yeah. Intentionality, that's good. Yeah. Flexibility. Flexibility. Why is that a benefit for a friend? Um, I, would, I would maybe rephrase that to, that falls closer to the, to the, I think, the category of humility as well. Because again, what you're doing is looking at somebody else and going, you matter enough for me to understand where you're coming from, to learn how to respond to you. So flexibility is a fruit of humility. Pride says, I'm not changing. You do things my way. Humility says, I'll flex and bend and do things your way. There's a hand back there. Yes. Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> Hallelujah for the non-pretentious people. Um, yes, absolutely. You guys have hit on pretty much all the ones I wrote down. Uh, a couple that I would add. Uh, generosity. And that doesn't just mean generosity with stuff, but it just a, a spirit of what I have is yours. I'll, I'll offer it to help you. So generosity. Um, humility we touched on. Humor and fun. That does not mean you need to be gregarious. There are very, it just means you know how to enjoy life with somebody else. 
enjoyment. So there are all different styles of this. I'm not, I'm not trying to put anybody in a box and say you need to be a stand-up comedian to be a good friend. It just means a good friendship has to have some level of laughter and enjoyment and, and fun. Fun is a biblical thing. It's not in the Bible, but like it, it's, a, it's a fruit of the fruits of the Spirit. Let's put it that way. And then this would go with being determined, but I'd say courage. Courage is a necessity in a true friend because they have to be willing to do the hard thing on your behalf or alongside you when there's a cost, right? Or, let me rephrase, you have to be willing to do the hard thing when there's a cost on behalf of your friends. Because when we talk about friendship, it's easy to turn around and go, all of my friends suck, none of them live up to this, as opposed to, I, I need to invest in this, focus on this, and, and aiming it at ourselves. All right, I have a couple more questions. Why is it so hard to make friends and keep them as you get older? Yeah. Nope, you. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's a great answer. It's easy to find excuses to isolate yourself, and we'll touch on that in a minute. Yeah. Yep. Despite despite the digital access that we have, a lack of physical proximity is an absolute handicap for friendship. If you cannot see somebody face to face, it is really hard to maintain the same kind of friendship. FaceTime really matters. Yeah. That's all right. You don't know how true that is. Sometimes you just forget how to make friends. Um, when I was 30, I moved from the Chicago area to the Nashville area. I lived in the Chicago area through college and then several years after. And uh, so my friends just, I kind of made friends in college and then that just sort of carried me through. I moved to Nashville and realized I don't know how to make friends. I don't know where to make friends. I don't know. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's like forgetting how to ride a bike kind of thing. It's, it's really true. Is there a hand over here? Yeah. Yeah. People change and not always for the better. Yeah. Yeah, you get comfortable with the friends you have and you sort of keep your, your eyes drop to your circle. You're not noticing and seeing who else the Lord is sort of bringing into your path. Yeah, these two and then, uh, and then we'll be done for this one. Yeah. Sometimes you get tired of change. Yeah, tired of change. That's absolutely true. Um, Sometimes the thought of making a friend is exhausting. I don't have energy for any more. I think both, like, not only are uh, other people not willing to change, but we're also not willing to change who we are. Yeah, or, or we change for the worse. Yeah. You know, if, if other, it's, it is not fair to say other people change for the worse and not acknowledge that we could easily be on that path. Is there a hand at the back? Yeah. Our priorities shift a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Priorities, st stage in life. Uh, there was a young guy at our church who's mid to late 20s, single guy, a young professional who I talked with several months ago, who was just infuriated at all of his former friends because they had all gone and gotten married. And now all of his friendships had changed and they'd hurt him so badly. Is that fair? No. Is it understandable? Yes, it is, because his, 
he had a certain kind of friendship with a group of guys, none of whom did he have the same kind of friendship with anymore. Now, all of those guys, all of those guys made really good moves in life, good for all of them, and he felt left behind. But yeah, that, that priority and change in, in circumstance matters. So yeah, the, these, are, these, are a, these are a big deal. So we already mentioned this one, mobility, transience, lack of proximity. You think, think about 50 or 100 years ago, you grew up in a place with a circle of people. By and large, that was going to be the circle of people who were buried next to you in the graveyard. Like, those were your friends, come hell or high water. That's, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but boy, have things changed. I've lived in, spent 18 years in Minnesota, I spent 12 years in Illinois, and I've been in, in um, Tennessee for 10. That's 800, 900 miles of transience, different groups of friends, different stages in life. It's a really different circumstance. You get a place like camp, people come and then disperse, friendships are formed, and then dissipate. Um, I'd say one of the biggest ones is the digital default. The digital default. And what I mean by that is our instinct, and probably yours even more so than mine, is to go digital communication before you go actual human communication. It is, it's texting, messaging on whatever app you prefer before you have a conversation. So I'm gonna try to resolve a conflict with 827 texts rather than one seven minute conversation. That's dumb. Just, just throw that out there. That doesn't make any sense. Um, screen time instead of FaceTime. And this is not, this is not just, um, this isn't a generational thing. This is even a professional thing. You start working remote. Your coworkers, you have a different relationship with them when you're on Zoom or Teams or whatever the app is you're using for these meetings because all you're doing is having transactional interactions with those people. So that's Debbie who lives in a different state and I know that she's married and has three kids and has two cats and whatever. I'm not Debbie's friend. I interact with Debbie about IT or about marketing or about whatever. So digital interaction dehumanizes. It diminishes the, the whole of the person. But that's, our, that's becoming our default. Another aspect is curated presence over actually knowing people. How many of you... I just ran across this one because, again, I'm old in the last several months. How many of you uh, are aware of Be Real? I'm not going to ask how many use it because I'm about to dump all over it. Be Real is not real, okay? That is, that's still curated. Do you, you know, so th those of you who don't know what it is, bless you. I wish I didn't. Uh, and somebody can correct me, but my understanding is that it is an app that at random times throughout the day will notify you and it is time to be real and you take your phone and you take a photo of what's in front of you and where you are exactly where you're sitting and exactly in that moment. So if you're at a coffee shop, it's like, or I, you know, if it buzzed right now, photo of all of you people, photo of me with this lovely background. That's me being real, right? That's, that's a curated thing. Because you have the option to, and I watched somebody do this, I, the notification goes off, they angle to get a different background, they summon a friend into the picture, and they snap it. That's not what they were doing. They just curated a presence to present something to the world that is a little different. They, they change the background on the table in front of them. That, that kind of thing. But we do this all the time. What we put online is not the totality of life. 
I was just in Minnesota celebrating Christmas with my family. We had some wonderful times, and we had some times that would easily, we'll just call them family. That stuff didn't end up on social media. My kids opening gifts, going sledding, all the good stuff did. So the impression people have of my trip is it was awesome. The actual reality of my trip is it was complicated. Okay, so we have a curated presence instead of a genuine presence. It doesn't mean we're liars. I think some people are. But we put online bits and pieces. When you know somebody, the people who know me best are able to say, how, how was your trip really? You know, how was the interaction with complicated family member? Because they know there's more to the story than we had a lot of fun. So that's part of the digital default. And then the last piece is our social sharing breeds competition and jealousy. We don't even realize it. But I, this one dawned on me more so than ever recently. Uh, one of my daughters, um, just she, she posted on Snapchat that she was at Target with a friend and another friend got mad because she wasn't invited. Which all sounds very high school to me. When I was in high school, if I went to Target with a friend, none of my friends ever knew unless we told them three days later we were at Target on Wednesday or whatever. And, and there's, is that, that, that's better. We're not, we're not supposed to know what everybody is doing all the time. We're not supposed to know that our friends are with one another and we're not there. Like that's, that's supposed to be outside the scope of our awareness. The digital world is filling us with this, with this awareness which creates jealousy, which creates competition. You're spending more time with that, with that person than I am and so forth. So the digital default erodes friendship. The last piece I would say, um, why is it so hard to make friends, is the very simple concept of inertia and resistance. I say simple because because it's, it's concise to explain. We want friendship to just happen and then to stay there. We just we trip and fall into a friendship and then we have it for the rest of our life, right? Because that's how it starts when you're a kid. You accidentally make a friend and then like maybe at 40 they're still your friend. I still have some childhood friends who I just sort of sat next to in Sunday school in fifth grade. That happens. But not, it doesn't just happen. There's been a lot of overcoming along the way. We, we actually need to invite and pursue and invest and cultivate for friendship to stick. And there is resistance to that. It all takes work. It's worth it. But friendship doesn't come easy. It takes work. So lastly, this is, a, this is more of a conceptual question, and then I want to I end by, by walking through Genesis, part of Genesis 3 with you. But this question, we don't need to take a long time on it, but why do we so readily cheapen the word friend to something lesser? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good answer. It's easier to cope with not having real friends by pretending your acquaintances are your friends. That's a fantastic answer, yeah. That level of intimacy is scary. It's scary to have a real, genuine, deep friendships. Yes, awesome answer. Yeah. And in this level of social media, you want to look at, you want to look, oh, I'm so amazing, I'm so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And by, like Riley said, calling your acquaintances your friends, it looks like to everyone else, you have more friends. 
Yes. Yeah. No, attaching status to a number of friends. Yeah, a couple more. One here. Yeah. There's, there's a big difference between somebody that you know on a deep level that's your friend or somebody that you um, talk to every day but may, may not yeah. have that level. Of that's, and that's a really good answer because it, friendship is not tidy. Like there's not a, you, you, people don't like change colors when they move from acquaintance to friend and you're like one day they're in the blue category and then they're in the red category. Okay, that's a friend. There's, there's sort of this vague like we're becoming friends. There's a process. And so what do you call those people in between? Or people you like but don't know all that well? What do you call them? I don't know. But, but they're not really your friends yet. <laughs> Did I see a hand back there somewhere earlier? Okay, here. Yeah. It's just it's easier to lower the bar than to do the hard work. Um, you guys, have, you guys have hit on all of the things that I, that I wanted to say. One of, one, of the, one of the answers is we just don't truly understand what a friend is. It is easier to apply it to anybody who might someday possibly be a friend than it is to just say, that's a friendly acquaintance. That sounds like an insult. If you say anything less than friend, it sounds like you're insulting somebody. That's a coworker who I get along with. Well, what's the problem? Nothing. I just said they were a coworker I get along with. I just don't know them well enough to be a friend. So you get what I'm saying? Which is why then we create categories like we have best friends and close friends and friends and like fake friends. And, and so that, that's not to say we don't have real best friends. It's just we, we lump everybody in because we don't have comfort levels saying it is dignified, it is honoring to say, I like you. I just don't know you that well. And we're not friends yet. We could be. We're not there yet. So we, we just sort of lump everybody in, which then lowers the bar on friendship to somebody who is not hostile, for example, or somebody you like and spend some time with. Eh, that also describes your dog, like they're not your friend. Doesn't matter how much you tell them, they're not your confidant. Um, all right, so we just walked through a lot of ideas and observations. Most of what we saw is that we, as a culture, are somewhere between lost and confused when it comes to friendship. Your answers indicate that you have a much better, at least intellectual, handle on what a friendship ought to be, which is great. No idea how you practice all of this. If all of you put into play everything that you've said, you are the best group of friends I have ever encountered, and I hope that is the case. What's that? <laughs> so, Friendship, friendship is this beautiful and necessary, it's beautiful and necessary, it's this gift from God. But what I want to look at now is, is why it is so stinking hard over time. Because all the answers that you gave, I mean, if I was to, and I'm not going to ask you to do this because I don't want to, to put you in an awkward spot, but if I asked you what is your satisfaction level with your current friendships or with yourself as a friend, my guess is the answers would be a lot less satisfactory than all of the cool ones you just gave me. Because you're human. That is not a disparagement of you. That's because you're living in the same world I'm living in. And that's what we're going to look at is this broken world. None of this difficulty is supposed to be this way. And Genesis 3 shows us why and how. So we're going to look at Gen the first 19 verses of Genesis 3. I'm not going to walk all the way through it, but just make some observations. So in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and it was good. Over and over again, we see this refrain, it was good. 
God created man in his own image. That means mankind, human beings, in his image. Male and female, he created us, and it was good. God gave humankind a purpose and an aim and a relational context, and it was good. And then we get to Genesis 3, and that's where we're going to land for the rest of the evening. So I'm just going to read these 19 verses and then just make a few observations from it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, whom you gave to, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now let's walk through this together to see where and how things went wrong, particularly as it pertains to friendship. So I'm not going to go through verse by verse, but just hit a few points that apply particularly to the relational reality of life. But first we have to start with verse 1. Did God really say? The words of Satan. That is a bad starting place. That's the question of rebellion. To deny what God said by rejecting or changing or diminishing it. Did God really say? Maybe God said this instead. Maybe God didn't say all that. Maybe what God meant was something that wasn't obvious in what he said. This is how, this is how we, we, lose, we lose the plot. We get off, off the rails because we, we pose the question, did God really say? 
You deny it, reject it. And ultimately what that's doing is taking a design that God had in place that Genesis 1 and 2 makes so clear it was good. And it says, I don't want it. I want to go a different direction instead. All this good, I think I, think I can do or find something better. That's where this starts. There's a rejection of God's plan and design. And then we get to verse 7. There's a I'm skipping over a ton of important stuff, but again, just want to focus on the relational reality. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Or why did they just realize this now? And then why did they feel the need to cover themselves? It's because up until this point, everything had been good. They had been sinless. They had been safe. They had been in a context where there were absolutely no threats. There was total innocence. There was shamelessness. And We think of shamelessness as somebody who ought to have shame and doesn't. They had no reason to have shame. There was none, which is a a reality we can't even conceptualize. When there is no reason to be ashamed or embarrassed of anything. It's almost too much to get our heads around. So nakedness for them was not just a physical state. What the Bible's talking about here is the state of their souls wide open, unhidden, unashamed before the Lord and before each other because there was no vulnerability. There was nothing to threaten them. It was pure, complete intimacy. And when they sinned, all that changed. Now there was risk, threat, brokenness, mistrust, shame. They broke God's design. God designed things to be one way and it was good and they rejected it. Now they have to hide and cover things. And when it says they made loincloths out of leaves, take that literally, it's also symbolic. There is now a barrier between people and a barrier between people and God. They lost intimacy with God and one another. And Peter mentioned this at the very very beginning. In our culture, we hear the word intimacy and immediately think sex. That's not what intimacy means. We think of intimacy almost entirely attached to the, the erotic. I mean, they, they, have an, they have a section in stores for women's undergarments called intimates. That's ridiculous. That should just be called underwear. <laughs> intimacy shouldn't make, us, it shouldn't make us cringe. It shouldn't make us feel awkward. It shouldn't, you know... Two two people of the same gender who are straight should not feel weird describing the other as an intimate. Now, that ship might have sailed culturally. Like, we might never get that back. But the reality is that the definition of intimacy is a sharing of souls, a closeness of hearts. It is oneness of person. The, the, The only context that we get close to this now is in marriage. And even that has a sexual component to it. But the reality is, sexuality is supposed to be a reflection of intimacy with God, not the most intimate thing. There's a place for intimacy and friendship that's closer to Eden than the, the world's version of sex. So friendship is supposed to look like that. That's what was lost in Genesis 3. So when it says... They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed and they covered themselves. They lost that that unity of spirit with God and with one another. 
Then we get to verse 11. And Adam says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she. You see, two blames. He turned the two relationships God had given him that had been perfect into accusations. He had a relationship with God, the woman you gave me, so God was wrong. And then she, she did something wrong. So he had a perfect relationship with God and a perfect relationship with Eve, and he blamed both for his problems. So now we have this relational aspect of mistrust and accusation and evasion and disrespect. He just disrespected God and his wife. So this is a relational dynamic that's now at play. When there's a barrier between people, there's no longer trust. We now throw accusations out. We no longer take the responsibility. We shove it off on other people, which is a thing all of us have experienced, either because we've done it or it's been done to us, likely both. Then we get to verses 14 through 19, and I'm not going to touch on them all. I just want to give the, the sweeping overview here. This is, this is the curse. Now, when you think curse, you might think... Um, you know, Harry Potter or something. That's not what this is. This is a consequence. Everything had been good. Now nothing was good the way it was supposed to be. This, these five verses touch every single aspect of life. That's, that's what's covered here. Spiritual, relational and emotional, familial, natural, physical, mortal, vocational. Nothing is unaffected. And nothing runs the way it's supposed to. Every single aspect of life is now warped. So this is the consequence for sin. When God's good design is rejected, God says, fine, I'll give you what you want. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. That doesn't mean everything is as bad as it could possibly be. We do not live in an apocalyptic nightmare. We live in a world where it looks like it should be good, and then it's disappointing. We throw ourselves into a friendship and the person moves away. We throw ourselves into a friendship and the person chooses another friend instead of us. They betray us. We betray them. That's what I'm talking about. There's, it, it's good until it isn't. And that, one second. So it, God made the world. All of the, all of the categories that I just listed, spiritual, relational, etc., they're all good. God, God, didn't, uh, God didn't abandon the world he didn't uncreate what he had created. His fingerprints are all over this. You cannot go outside, look up at these mountains and think, well, God sucks. No, it's beautiful. You cannot get to know people and think, well, God's, God's a lousy creator. No, people are amazing. But none of it is perfect. None of it's the way it's supposed to be because of the effects of sin. So we struggle with friendship for that reason. None of the things in this world can fill us or make us whole. So this means that friendship, a thing that God designed and loved and intended, and we're going we're to look at God's design for friendship a little bit more tomorrow, became twisted. It's warped. It's, not, it's supposed to be aiming at a bullseye, and it, it goes off course. There's just always a resistance. Life resists friendship, both making friends and maintaining friends. It is, it is never simple and easy. There will always come a point of resistance. That's why it's hard. It's why loneliness exists. Uh, earlier you were, you were talking about those periods of time where there's just, I don't feel like I have any friends or my friends are not available. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That stuff is real. Friendships pass away. 
And it's not just a matter of opportunities or skills or personality type, which should be a comfort to you. If you feel like friendship is hard and you've been looking at it and going, why do I suck so much at making friends? Why am I so bad at this? I mean, you might be. But so are the people you're trying to make friends with. Like, all of us own this. We wear this. We, are, we, we all contribute to the difficulty of friendship. So it's, it's a matter of spiritual brokenness. We struggle with friendship because of the effects of sin. Because things aren't as they ought to be. But I don't want to leave you, especially not on New Year's Eve, looking ahead at the next year with this sort of downer of, of a night. So I want to end with, with a few points of hope. The first one is actually in the curse. There's that little phrase, you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. Talking about the offspring of the woman and the serpent. Written into the curse that we are all under is the poison pill that ends the curse. God made a promise in the middle of punishment. All right, it's going to be miserable for all of you. Nothing is going to be the way it's supposed to be. You all need something that, that will save you, and I'm building the promise for that in. So we can't read Genesis 3 and think, oh no. We have to read it and go, hope is coming. It's there. Because the Bible, the Bible doesn't leave us in this place. We shouldn't give up. Brokenness in the world, which surrounds us, is not a reason to tap out. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have come. Quite the opposite. It's a reason to look for God's handiwork and to persevere in living as he calls us to, including in friendship. So remember, friendship is designed by God and is therefore good. Okay? It's hard, and it will be disappointing at times, and it will break our hearts sometimes, and it is inherently good. Goodness is baked into real friendship because it's designed by God. Second, friendship is difficult and it requires dependence on God. So I mentioned tomorrow we're going to look at God's design for friendship. Monday we're going to look at what the Bible says about how friendship works, which ultimately means how we depend on the Lord to be good friends. And the Bible gives us all this. It does not, it does not say friendship is great and also you will never find it. It says in and in the midst of brokenness, here's how it can work. So tonight I want to leave you with this. Genesis 3 is the bad news. We looked at that. It's the worst news. It's the saddest chapter in the Bible. Probably. You might, you might say the crucifixion of Christ. But the fact is that both of them, in the same way that the crucifixion of Christ is called Good Friday, even though it's the worst day, Genesis 3 is the worst chapter with a promise built in. So, But I think it's the worst news but it's just the beginning of the story. There are 1,188 other chapters in the Bible to complete the story of redemption and point us to Christ. And the end of the story is awesome. We're not doomed to broken friendships and loneliness. The Bible gives a design and a plan and a promise for true and meaningful friendship. We're going to look at all of those. The design, the plan, the promise. And we have so much to look forward to. And God has so much in store for us. Revelation 21 says that Christ will make all things new. That's the end of the story. So we're at Genesis 3. That's what we have to look forward to. So friendship is hard for these reasons, but it's not hopeless and we have so much to look forward to. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these folks these, uh, that you've brought here. This is not by accident that anyone's here. I pray that 
our times of worship together, our times of fun together, our times of conversation together would be honoring to you, that friendships would be forged, that we would look at this and, and see your handiwork and the goodness of friendship that's worth investing in, that's worth pouring into, that's worth trusting you in to overcome those hardships. Particularly, Lord, for those in the room who are suffering from loneliness. I pray that through this weekend, friendships would be formed that that would show them your love for them. Show them that they're not alone because they have your presence and they have your saints who love them. We thank you for your word and all the ways it fills us. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Camp Susqua, be sure to visit our website at susqua.org. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his love in-